Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hello, friends. Today, we are going to talk about the difference between gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. Um, I posted this on my stories. I was actually working on content for the Functional Nutrition Academy and posted one of the slides. And hey, by the way, I have to say this. Um, As of like two minutes ago, all of the spots for the Functional Nutrition Academy for March are completely filled. I'm so, I mean, you could probably hear the excitement in my voice. It's just one of those things that I'm so excited about it. I'm really excited to work with practitioners. And I'm also just going to claim it. I'm like really proud of myself because this is something, this is the biggest project I've ever undertaken in my entire life. And I had some wicked moments of doubt. Um, you know, the, those closest to me can can definitely speak to this. Um, like severe doubt, severe imposter syndrome, severe, what am I doing? Why am I dedicating so much of my time to this when I don't even know if people want it? Now, I will say that I, I had the same exact experience when I was creating Your Hormone Revival because at that point, that was the largest, most intense project I've ever done in my career. Now, mind you, that's a three-month program. My practitioner training is 12 months. So that times four, it's just a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot. I've definitely been feeling a little burnt out lately just with all of the things that I've got on my plate. However, it is the ultimate payback. And I don't just mean financial payback. I mean like soul payback to know that people want what I'm creating. I mean, I think any creator of any any t- any kind can relate to that feeling is like, oh my God, I just like birthed this baby. I'm still actually birthing the baby because I am still creating content in real time. But it, to know that people are interested in it and want it is 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 pretty spectacular. And just knowing that like, there's going to be more, there's only one of me. I cannot work with every single person, you know, that needs functional nutrition, functional medicine help. So it just warms the cockles of my heart to know that there's going to be people that, you know, that I feel really confident in recommending to a lot of you. So yay, stay tuned for that. Anyway, back to the task at hand. Um, I, what I posted was a slide that said gluten sensitivity and celiac disease are not the same. And I anticipated some questions and because my DMs are closed to questions, (laughs) I try to be so clear about that boundary. I really do. Um, I posted a sticker 
for questions. So um, I just got way too many to answer in real time. And since there was so much interest, I figured it would be a great topic for the pod, um, especially because some of the questions that were submitted required more in-depth explanation. And I didn't want to just like do a hundred stories to answer. I love answering questions in real time, but sometimes I'm like, is anyone going to watch this? You know, this is going to be long. So fortunately, the podcast provides like long content forum for me. Um, so I'm going to talk about the way that there's so many different ways we could take this conversation. I mean, you could talk about gluten in my functional nutrition academy. I mean, there's modules upon modules of about gluten sensitivity and leaky gut and celiac and all of the things. Um, so I kind of had to narrow down my focus and really stick to answering the questions that you had and um, kind of combining those questions together too. So I will talk about the way that I test for gluten sensitivity, but I'm not going to sit here and unpack every single way to test for it ever. I'll speak to what I know and what I use clinically. Um, heads up, I'm also not going to teach you how to analyze a wheat zoomer. That is a couple of practitioners had kind of submitted questions about the wheat zoomer. And if that's information that you want, that's what I do in my practitioner training program. Um, but the wheat zoomer is the test that I use in my practice. And if you purchase it through my site, I will analyze it for you. So you don't just purchase the test. I actually tell you what the test means. Um, so just a heads up on that. And we'll link to that if you are interested in testing for all of the things that that test uh, tests for, which I'll talk about. Um, we'll link to that in the, in the show notes for you. And just as a, a, a gentle reminder here, if you have follow-up questions, please take them to your own provider. I'm a nutritionist, but I'm not your nutritionist. I can't answer questions in my DMs or even in our company email. So some people kind of like circumvent my DMs and go to email, which I appreciate because Lauren can can be the, the deciding factor, but she can't answer your questions either. Um, as always, I'm more than happy for you to utilize my podcast information. More than happy. It's why I show up week after week to do it for you. Uh, this goes for other nutrition pros too. I know a lot of RDs and other health professionals listen and they pepper in some of this knowledge to their own practice. That is so amazing. Well done. I love that. I also know that you recommend a lot of your clients and your patients to listen to my show. And I, I super appreciate that. I'm just so happy to be a resource that you trust like that. When I see the amount of other practitioners that share my podcast, I get a little bit warm in the chest, a little, little tear in my eye, because that is a huge compliment. So just know that I appreciate you. And, and I, 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 I truly, truly appreciate that, that you trust me. But as always, I'm not available for follow-up questions. I produce the show, you access it for free. Anything beyond that is my paid work. And this is a boundary that I set for all listeners. And I appreciate you understanding. And even if you don't understand, I appreciate you respecting me anyway. Okay. So let's dive into the actual topic at hand. What is important to understand is that gluten sensitivity exists without celiac disease. One is not more real than the other. And I think why people were so excited about this episode is because if you have gluten sensitivity, people don't always understand how severe it can be. And that can feel a little frustrating. You know, going to a restaurant back in the day when we actually went to restaurants, um, I went, you know, when, when you say you're gluten-free, they'll ask, well, is this an allergy? 
Is this an allergy? Or they'll say, is this celiac disease? Or is it just a preference? Like those are the only two options. Um, and my clients definitely get a little tripped up with this question. They're always like, what should I say? <laughs> what should I say when they ask me that? So when, when you have gluten sensitivity, I always tell you, if you are a client of mine, to act as though you have celiac. Act as though it's celiac because accidental exposures at restaurants even without celiac disease, even with gluten sensitivity, can trigger real physical reactions in your body. And there, it's just not worth the risk just to make somebody else feel uncomfortable it's kind of, or make somebody else feel comfortable is is like, you can lie. It's okay to lie. It doesn't matter. Your, your server at the restaurant is going to be okay, even if you tell a little white lie just to protect your body. <laughs> so I say act as if it's celiac. Um, and I even recommend taking an enzyme every single time that you eat out of the house. If you have celiac disease, definitely. And if you don't, um, if you have gluten sensitivity, still a smart bet. Uh, it's the DPP4 enzyme and it helps the body break down gluten and casein. Um, and different companies make, you know, I don't have like one dog in the fight when it comes to a specific product because different companies make that same enzyme and it, and it works, um, you know, it, it works well. So, uh, I do recommend having that on hand. I keep some in my purse. I keep some in my car. I like just make sure I always have it on hand. If I'm out and about, if I'm eating at somebody else's house, if I'm eating at a restaurant, if I'm eating takeout, I'm always taking those enzymes because I've been accidentally exposed to gluten and it sucks. It can, it can really take you down for a couple of, um, so, some people it's days, some people it's weeks, some people it's months. So I will say that I wrote a blog a few years back, what to do if you get, uh, exposed to gluten or accidentally exposed to gluten. And you can check that out for some ideas. Uh, if it, if that happens to you, that, that DPP4 enzyme is a really good idea to take because it breaks, it really breaks down the, uh, the protein and your body can't react to individual amino acids. So if we can break down that protein, that can be really helpful. Um, and then anything to kind of like put out the fire. So it's going to kick up a lot of inflammation. So anything, um, anything as my mentor, Jessica Flanagan would say, like to soothe the sunburn on the inside. So a great thing you can think of to have on hand is Organifi's gold powder because that packs a good turmeric punch. Speaking of which, I am, I was just telling you a little bit that I was like feeling kind of burnt out. My classic telltale sign for like you're headed toward burnout is when I have a craving in the afternoon for a second cup of coffee. I have an espresso machine. So this is like <laughs> not ideal because I can just run downstairs and make myself a latte. So I was doing that a bunch over the past few weeks. I'd say like two weeks. And sure enough, I came crashing down. So I am back on my jam of doing an afternoon elixir. Sometimes I do matcha lattes, um, but lately I've been doing Organifi powder. So I've been doing their Harmony blend, which is kind of like the spicy chocolate that's supposed to be um, really helpful for hormonal imbalance because it has a lot of different herbs for hormonal imbalance. Or I will do the gold powder, just like a nice turmeric milk. And I, all I do is I just heat up some milk. I use coconut milk or almond milk, heat up some milk in a little tiny pan, add in the turmeric, or excuse me, add in the Organifi gold powder that has the turmeric. It already comes sweetened. It's under three grams of sugar. It's sweetened with monk fruit. Um, so that's all you have to do. So if you're like not super into mixing and matching potions, this is like already done for you because it has some nice calming herbs and it's not going to jack up your stress response like 
making an espresso freaking high caffeine bevy. So highly, highly recommend doing that instead and taking care of your adrenals. Oh, turmeric, curcumin can be really helpful. Um, DGL, slippery elm, chamomile, any of the soothing or mucilaginous herbs can be really helpful to kind of like calm everything down. Um, if you do get accidentally exposed, those would be some some good good ideas to implement. All right, so celiac disease is only one aspect of a range of possible manifestations of gluten sensitivity. There's really a spectrum of gluten intolerance that's clinical to subclinical. So clinical, like we can put you under a scope and say, yikes, there's damage to your intestine. Subclinical, like we can't really find anything, but it's still happening in your body. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. I'd say like this is the most important thing to to understand. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disease in and of itself, whereas gluten sensitivity and what I like to refer to it is as non-celiac wheat sensitivity. Um, Non-celiac wheat sensitivity or non-celiac gluten sensitivity you might hear. Uh, I like wheat because there's other components of wheat beyond gluten that can be problematic. Um, but non-celiac wheat sensitivity is a risk factor for developing autoimmune disease. So if you're sensitive to wheat and you eat it anyway, that can make you more likely to develop an autoimmune disease, whereas celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. Okay, so hopefully that helps you kind of understand. Um, 29% of non-celiac wheat sensitivity developed autoimmune disease, like a diagnosed autoimmune disease. 46% of non-celiac wheat sensitivity developed ANA antibodies, which is, um, it's, a, it's a lupus marker. It can also be indicative of other autoimmune situations. So it's not nothing. It's not nothing. When you have celiac disease, you have intestinal autoimmunity against transglutaminase 2, which is a tissue protein marker. So there is a an autoimmune attack at the lining, at the, at the, the, the intestine. There is an intestinal autoimmune response happening. What is important to understand, but it's vastly overlooked, is that since celiac disease is an autoimmune disease, any trigger can flare it up, not just gluten. So celiac disease folks try to stay away from or stay away from the gluten because that they know that that can flare up their autoimmunity. But anything else that can flare up, any other autoimmunity can flare up celiac disease. So a s- stressful event, um, infection, chemical exposure, um, going through a really hard time, right? Anything that can flare up any autoimmunity can flare up celiac disease independent of gluten. It's not a gluten issue per se. Once you have autoimmunity, you have autoimmunity and it goes beyond the gluten. Obviously, you have to 100% avoid gluten with celiac disease, but that doesn't say that's going to prevent every single flare. Um, and, you know, there's, like I was saying, there's so many different ways to take this conversation. I'm not going to talk about how to properly do a gluten-free diet or what to avoid or any anything like that in this, in this podcast. Uh, I think it should just be too long of an episode. Um, but just understand that that, that is, that's part of the picture. Being on a 100% 
gluten-free diet, avoiding cross-contamination, avoiding uh, potential interactions, avoiding gluten cross-reactivity with other foods. All of that needs to, you know, you need to talk about with your practitioner if you have a celiac disease diagnosis. With an autoimmune flare-up, when you have a flare-up, you might need to support your gut more. And then when you feel better, you can take a break. This is so important for you to know if you have celiac or any other autoimmune uh, illness, especially if there's a, a gut component. Like you might go through a flare and you have to throw down extra support. And then when you're out of the flare, you can kind of go back to politics as usual. And I, I, I always want to tell people this because I'm so sensitive to the fact that when you hit a hard spot, when you hit a flare, when you hit, um, when you feel, you know, when you feel bad, you're like, oh my God, it's hard to not feel like you're totally backsliding. You're like, did I undo all of, you know, all of the good? Am I going back to the bad, scary place? And it's important to know that, no, you just might need to throw down some extra support right now. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong. That's okay. That's part of the process. Um, now with celiac disease, it has a very specific genotype. So there are genes, specific genes that are associated with celiac disease, HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8. You can be heterozygous for one or both. You can be homozygous for one or, one or both, just how genes work, right? You get them from your parents. Um, with this, with, with these genes, what happens is that when you have celiac disease, there your dendritic cells uh, sample gluten and have a very aggressive response, a really aggressive response. So dendritic cells are super cool. They're like often referred to as like little octopuses. They have these long arms and they're right at the lining of the gut and they reach in to the lumen, uh, the inside of your digest digestive tract. They stretch one of their arms in and they sample the things that are in there. And if what they sample is something that your body's sensitive to or if it's problematic, when they sample it, they are like, yo, because the dendritic cells then come back and tell the immune system what to do. So the dendritic, dendritic cells tell the immune system to go buck wild. So that is a very unique response in the celiac disease process, and it aggressively destroys the gut. We have villus atrophy, crypt hyperplasia, malabsorption. I'll talk about all of this in a little bit. Um, so a couple of the questions that came in were about the genes. Like, what if I have the genes for celiac? Uh, that means you're part of one third of the population, of the US population, uh, that has that HLA, DQ2, DQ8 genotype. That's a third of us, okay? But the way that genes work is that you can have them and they can not be expressed. That's really what the whole field of epigenetics is all about, if you've ever heard of that. It's the idea that environmental factors, so things like stress, lifestyle, diet, movement, our thoughts, um, our environment, did I say that already? All of these things impact whether or not our genes are expressed, whether they're turned on or turned off. So having these genes isn't a celiac diagnosis because they might not be expressed. But if you have these genes, you're more likely to get celiac disease. But again, it doesn't mean that you have it. It just means that you have the genetic susceptibility and then the environment is the thing that turns it on. So 
we have to ask because celiac disease rates are going up. We have to ask what's turning on the genes, right? What's, what's kicking, what's hitting the light switch, so to speak. And we can absolutely look to modern day living. It's the same reason why all other autoimmune disease are on the rise. It's this idea of, of an evolution, evolutionary mismatch where our environment has changed so dramatically and so quickly that our genes haven't had the time to catch up. So, you know, the way that we live our life, go, go, go nonstop, um, nutrient poor diet, eating a lot of antigenic foods, including wheat, um, you know, being in front of a screen all day, being indoors all day, not getting enough nature exposure, um, not, you know, uh, like not allowing our nervous system to ever downregulate. All of these things can be the on switch for genetics. Um, but we also have new wheat. It's hybridized gluten. It's referred to as modern wheat in the medical literature. It's a, it's a different, it is a different wheat than we have eaten like in historically, right? What happens with hybridization is it creates new wheat proteins. It's not the same thing as GMO. So two different things we're talking about. Um, so it creates new wheat proteins that our, our, our body doesn't necessarily recognize. And on top of that, we have pesticides, right? We're, we have liberal use of pesticides. Um, those pesticides can bind to the protein. It can change the structure of the protein. When we change the, the protein shape, it becomes a new antigen. It becomes a new trigger because our body isn't, doesn't recognize it. It's a new thing. So this combination of hybrid, uh, you know, modern wheat, uh, liberally using pesticides, we can turn the celiac disease gene on in susceptible people, right? That's kind of what's happening there. Those are the, those are the working theories. Now with gluten sensitivity, it's a different genotype. So the genes are different. Um, it's HLA DQ1 and DQ4 for the most part. Now these can promote autoimmunity, it can promote leaky gut, it can promote inflammation throughout the body. It's not nothing. Okay. It's not like it, they're two different things. We don't have to put them on a spectrum of, you know, which one's the worst one. They can both be bad. It's okay. <laughs> you know, like there's no competition here. Promoting autoimmunity is a pretty big deal, right? Um, the gliadin proteins, that's one of the proteins within wheat can cross react with tissues in the body. That is a major trigger for autoimmunity in general. But the difference is, is that it's not going to cause the aggressive malabsorption syndrome and complete villous atrophy that celiac disease um, can produce. So let me just talk about that for a, a hot minute. Um, what happens in celiac disease is we have our intestine, the lining of our small intestine has these little finger-like projections called villi and uh, or microvilli. They, um, where we absorb most of our nutrients is in the lining of the small intestine. So the reason that we have these finger-like projections, almost like a shag carpet, is because it increases surface area. So there's more room to absorb our nutrients. So they have a very functional purpose. What happens in celiac disease is those villi get damaged. They get blunted. The, the fingertips essentially get taken off. 
And the more destruction we have there, the, more, the, the worse absorption we have. So what happens is that we have this autoimmune attack on the lining of the gut when we have celiac disease. We have this autoimmune attack of those microvilli. The villi get damaged. Since the villi are responsible for absorbing your nutrients, we have poor absorption. And when this gut inflammation really like ramps up, our nutrient absorption goes down. Um, we also have crypts that can get deeper. That's what crypt hyperplasia is. And because the villi have um, lymphatic capillaries on them, they can help us to absorb dietary fats. This is why it's not uncommon to see fat-soluble vitamin problems, essential fatty acid problems in celiac disease. Um, we, it, it, it's that, that transglutaminase too, that's the unique characteristic that makes it so different. Um, but both gluten sensitivity and celiac disease can make someone feel bad. So you never want to say, well, it's just gluten sensitivity. That has to be like stricken from everybody's uh, vernacular because it can make somebody feel very bad. It's just that that transglutaminase 2 autoimmunity, right? Mass destruction is super destructive. And that's why it's so important to test, to know what you're working with. A lot of questions came in about what's the difference in symptoms between the two. And that's really tricky because once you muck up the lining of the gut, which is kind of what gluten is really good at doing, the symptoms can go anywhere. If you have inflammation at the level of the gut, inflammation can travel anywhere in the body. So yeah, sometimes gluten sensitivity can look like digestive issues for sure, but sometimes it's headache or pain or joint pain or stiffness or swelling, fatigue. If you have autoimmunity, it can exacerbate any autoimmune symptoms, depression, skin issues like rashes, acne, eczema, psoriasis. I did have a few questions come in about skin specific stuff. I'm going to send you back to the gut skin connection because I've already talked for two hours about that. So I don't want to reinvent that wheel, but I have a lot of good information for those of you who are asking about like gluten and skin stuff. Chickity check that out. Now, the symptoms of celiac disease can look similar to gluten sensitivity. It's, it's very hard to tell just by symptoms alone. But what's really wild is that the majority of people with transglutaminase 2 antibodies, that's celiac disease, right, do not have digestive issues. For every symptomatic patient with celiac disease, there are eight patients with no GI symptoms, no digestive symptoms. So if you're only looking for GI symptoms, you will miss most of the celiac disease, which is why it's so severely underdiagnosed. The average celiac disease patient sees five doctors and spends 11 years since their um, before, uh, before they can actually receive a diagnosis after their symptoms appear. It is no different than the autoimmune merry-go-round where you're going to doctors and going to doctors and you're like, something's off, something's weird, something's not right. And they're like, it's fine. Try some Tums. Um, we also, a, a big indication that celiac disease is taking place are any malabsorption signs. So if you have... 
Uh, if you can't gain weight, if you're pale, if you're eating a lot, if you have anemia, sores in the corner of your mouth, osteoporosis, remember like low, um, low fat soluble vitamins, um, cholesterol issues, all of these can be signs that you're not absorbing your food and definitely warrants doing a celiac test. What is also important to understand about celiac is that the brain is the most common area of celiac destruction. So we talked about those transglutaminase 2 antibodies. We also have transglutaminase 6 enzyme that is triggered by those same genes and that causes the cerebellum to degenerate. So transglutaminase 6 has to do with the brain. We can see neurological manifestations, gluten ataxia, uh, gait abnormalities, balance, coordination issues, um, headaches, sensory losses, white matter on abnormalities on an MRI. I'm sorry, white matter abnormalities on an MRI. Um, a third of celiac patients have a neurological complaint. Most celiac patients have brain degeneration before gut degeneration. I forget who said this, so I apologize, but it's a good quote. It's really a neurological disease. It just so happened that gastroenterologist found it first. That's how significant it, it, its impacts are to the brain. Children with autism who have elevated IgG antibodies to gliden also have elevated IgG antibodies to cerebellar cells in the brain. So it's a big, 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 big deal. So I would say if you're having symptoms of gluten sensitivity or you're having any type of weird symptoms uh, in relation to gluten, but if you're having neurological issues, definitely think about celiac disease. Traditional tests for gluten would be an anti-glidin antibody. So again, glidin is one of the proteins that makes up gluten that's part of wheat. But anti-glidin antibody is not the only peptide that your body can react to within wheat. And so that's why I love the wheat zoomer. I feel like I'm like, I don't work for the company. I'm not, this is like not a sponsor. <laughs> this is not a sponsored uh episode. The, the, the company is not sponsoring me to say all of this. It's just the one that I use because I have, it has such good clinical utility. And a big question is like, how do you test for gluten sensitivity? But it, it breaks down over 20 different peptides, 20 different ways that your body can respond to the, the different peptides within gluten. So, um, anti-glidin is a good start, but it's not, it's going to miss some gluten sensitivity for sure. We can also look at tissue transglutaminase. So we have the transglutaminase 2, um, that is indicative of celiac disease. Sometimes anti-endomycel antibodies. Of course, the genetic markers, the HLA, DQ2, and DQ8 is a good one. And then the gold standard is often considered the intestinal biopsy. This one's a little tricky because they're looking for destruction, right? So that's kind of like end stage of the game. Um, you don't want to wait before you have destruction to avoid gluten. Um, the wheat zoomer does have an early detection marker. So it's an earlier window of celiac disease initiation and can identify anywhere from like 14 months to four years earlier than traditional lab markers. So I do think it's a good, um, a good test. Somebody was like, well, how do you know without testing if you have gluten sensitivity? 
The whole I feel fine when I eat gluten is usually not telling enough because feelings are usually end stage. Like if you're to the point where like this food causes me problems, like it's there's damage has already been done. Um, really the most accurate, the only accurate biomarker to determine whether you have gluten or wheat sensitivity is elevated antibodies to wheat peptides. That's really the most, like you, you can't argue with the immune system, right? The data is pretty clear. Um, if you don't, the test is pretty inexpensive, uh, all told, but if you don't, if you're not in a position to um, to purchase a test, you can purchase it off of my website. Uh, or you know, if you're working with a practitioner, you could totally ask them if they 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 have access to these tests. But you could also do an elimination provocation diet with gluten, where you remove gluten hardcore 100% for like 30 plus days, and then you challenge the system. So you see if your symptoms improve, um, and then you challenge the system. And notice if you have any symptom return when you add gluten back in. Let's stop here for a second and we'll pick right back up because I want to answer one of the top questions I get in my business, which is what probiotic do I recommend? Now, obviously this is going to depend on the individual and what you got going on in your gut, but for a daily staple probiotic, I'm a big fan of BioCult. I've actually been using them for uh, since Hattie was a baby. So over six years ago, um, I first learned about this company. Their favorite product of mine is their Boosted Probiotic because it's four times the potency of their original formula. Boosted is cost-effective, it's shelf-stable, and it contains strains of lactobacilli and bifidobacteria, which are the friendly bacteria in our guts that are often really low in the people that I'm doing functional GI testing on and stool testing on. Those bifidobacteria especially, they make up 90% of the beneficial flora in our colon. So when we hear all about the microbiome and the benefits of the microbiome, a lot of what we're hearing about are those bifidobacteria. So whenever I'm looking for a probiotic or recommending a probiotic, I'm always looking to make sure that they do have different strains of bifido and BioCults Boosted absolutely does. They're non-GMO, they're gluten-free, and their stability and potency are guaranteed through external lab testing. So somebody else came in and they said, yep, what they're saying is in this is actually in this. Um, and if if you can't swallow pills or you've got kiddo who can't swallow pills, you can break the capsules apart and sprinkle the contents into food or drink like oatmeal, yogurt, or smoothie or something like that. And of course you can just swallow them whole. So head over to biocult.com, use code FUNK. 20 so you can save 20% and get your gut feeling good. All right, now we're back. So I want to talk a little bit more about the wheat zoomer because you 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 really did have a lot of questions about that. Uh, so the test itself is looking for celiac disease. It's looking for wheat and gluten sensitivity. It's also looking for leaky gut and whether there's endotoxemia in the gut uh, as or potential endotoxemia as well. So it's looking for um, antibodies to lipopolysaccharides or LPS. Um, I'm not going to get into that conversation too, too much here for the sake of time, but just know that that is an important uh, marker on the test. When I see that elevated immediately, I'm like, okay, there's dysbiosis present. We need to run a stool test. 
because LPS doesn't get into the bloodstream unless you have leaky gut and you have dysbiosis. Um, we're looking at different immunoglobulins. So we're looking at IgA and IgG immunoglobulins. Um, IgA are the mucosal immunoglobulins. Um, they're found in the mucus layers, really our body's first line of defense, and it can indicate a recent exposure. IgG is more systemic, not necessarily specific. We're also looking at wheat IgE. IgE, I tell people, the IgE is like a true allergy, right? It's like an emergency, bust out the EpiPen. That's how I think of IgE. Um, it's mast cell mediated. IgE reaction to wheat is very rare. So you, in most people would know if they had that, right? Most people would know that they would, they had a major allergic reaction when they eat, they ate wheat, but we do see it on this test. We're also looking for celiac antibodies. So transglutaminase two, we also look for transglutaminase three and transglutaminase six. These are just different protein markers. It's where autoimmunity hits. So we can detect autoimmune reactions to gluten that are not celiac or have not yet become celiac. So two is the intestines, three is the skin. We can see severe skin reactions like dermatitis, uh, eczema, psoriasis, and then six is the brain. So it's where we see those neurological manifestations. And then we have the leaky gut panel. So let's talk a little bit about leaky gut, specifically zonulin. So zonulin is a protein that our body makes, and it it's essentially is like the mechanism, one of the mechanisms, mechanisms of inducing leaky, leaky gut. It opens up the tight junctions. It opens up the, the gates between the cells in the small intestine. And it's really kind of a survival mechanism. It's great if we have an, an acute exposure to a pathogen. Zonulin's going to say, hey, let's flush the system out. Like, let's get it on out of here. But the, the downside is that we know gliden within gluten, so gluten, can upregulate zonulin and it can increase intestinal permeability. It can increase leaky gut. Um, so we, when we eat gliden, it upregulates zonulin, which then opens up the tight junctions leading to leaky gut. Now, does this happen in every single person? <sighs> to varying degrees, yeah, kind of. Um, one, one study found that gluten-activated zonulin um, it looked at both people with celiac and without celiac disease and zonulin was released every time somebody ate gluten, but much, much higher in celiac patients. So it's kind of a tricky thing. Um, but what we know is that zonulin is really the mechanism of leaky gut. So a lot of people will test zonulin to say, do you have leaky gut? The tricky part about that is both serum zonulin, so zonulin in the blood, and fecal zonulin are not stable. They go all over the place. They're not really useful. They can they can differ hour to hour. They can fluctuate. So it's not the most, uh, the best marker. So like if I see a normal zonulin, I'm not really you know, I'm taking that with a grain of salt. Antibodies, however, stay stable. So we want to see antibodies to, to zonulin. If we see zonulin antibodies, it means that zonulin has been raised often in long enough that the body eventually amounted in, uh, 
an, an, uh, an immune response. So anti-zonulin antibodies is a much longer term picture. It's a better indi- indicator of leaky gut. So the wheat zoomer will show you both of those, but just know that if you're testing for leaky gut, that's really what you want to look for is those anti-zonulin antibodies. The test also differentiates between paracellular and transcellular intestinal permeability. I'm not going to go into a tremendous amount of detail here because we're sort of getting into like practitioner level stuff right now, but the test kind of does, doesn't kind of, it does um, differentiate between the two. Paracellular leaky gut is between the cells and transcellular is through the cells. It can also indicate if there's dysbiosis, uh, mediated leaky gut. There's like a lot of things that the the um, this test can tell you beyond just do you have leaky gut. Um, I'm a, I am a I get really frustrated with the functional medicine space because it's like all leaky gut all of the time. If I had a nickel for every client who came to me work you know after working with another practitioner being like oh I have leaky gut I'm on a leaky gut protocol I'm like cool how is that going for you. What kind of leaky gut do you have? What caused the leaky gut? Where did the leaky gut come from? (laughs) You know, we can't just rely on a leaky gut protocol. Um, We have to know where the leaky gut came from before we can fix the leaky gut. Anyway, sometimes it comes from gluten and the wheat zoomer can can give us um, some indication of this. Now, One thing to know that if you do have leaky gut, that is looking at the lining of the small intestine. What is phenomenally cool about the lining of the intestine is that it has the ability to heal itself. It's like Wolverine. I I refer to the lining of the gut as Wolverine because it has self-healing properties. And listen, sometimes when I'm having a bad health day, I do some Wolverine mantras and remind myself that my body has the ability to heal itself. My daughter's super into like superpowers right now. And she's like, what's your, what's your superpower? And I'm like, fling, I'm Wolverine. My body can heal itself. What's up? But we have to remember that we we can totally self-heal and the lining of the gut, those cells regenerate every few days. So that's amazing. So the next question becomes, well, if I'm sensitive to gluten now, but I heal the lining of the gut, can I then eat the gluten? And I am not a never say never type of gal. I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe. It's like the the analogy that I always use is like a brick wall. And forgive me if you've heard me say this a bazillion times, but I think it bears repeating that the lining of our gut is like a brick wall. It's a barrier system. And we have the ability to build new blocks and stack new new bricks all of the time, right? We're just constantly repairing that wall, repairing that wall, repairing that wall. However, if you're pulling out bricks faster than you're replacing them, then you don't have a good wall. You don't have a good barrier system. And that, for some people, is what eating gluten does. You're just pulling out brick after brick after brick after brick after brick. So your body's trying to heal and generate, right? Regenerate, but you're you're continuing to add the trigger. Um, so it really depends on your body's response. Gluten does tend to be a lifelong sensitivity in some folks. What I recommend if your goal is to eat gluten again, remove it for six months and then reintroduce, you know, reintroduce or retest. Um, 
does everyone need to be gluten-free is the, another question that I got. And that's another, well, it depends, right? Do you have a lot of gut damage? Do you have a lot of inflammation at the level of the gut? If you're looking to repair the gut, it does it, it makes sense to remove wheat from your diet, at least for a short, um, a short period of time. Um, I've heard this sunburn analogy that I really like that the surface of the gut is like the surface of the skin. If you go on vacation and the very first day you get a sunburn, do you go back out in the sun the next day? No, of course you do not, right? You stay inside, you stay in the shade, you allow your skin to heal, and then eventually you go back into the sun, right? That's the same thing. It's like eating gluten with an inflamed gut. It might be more, it might be more challenging for you to heal because your body doesn't have that chest, the, the chance to rest, repair, reduce inflammation, and rebuild. I will say though, if you have any neurological issues and you have not done a gluten-free diet, do a gluten-free diet. Go wheat-free for um, at least a month and see if that helps any, um, any of your symptoms. A couple more questions that were a little bit more specific. Um, Lil Kitty, Lil Kitty J says, true or false, unless you're diagnosed gluten intolerant, gluten-free foods are not recommended. Yeah, gluten-free foods can be kind of swaggy depending on what they are. You know, a lot of them are just hyper-refined foods. Um, I know, like my, my the people in my family who like try so hard to be accommodating and especially the grandparents that just want to feed Hattie food. She's gluten-free. We'll get all the gluten-free foods. And I'm like, this is just like, you know, this is just junk. It just has a gluten-free label on it. So gluten-free doesn't necessarily translate to healthy. Um, and in fact, it can be higher in refined carbs and lower in, um, higher in sugar and lower in fiber than like whole grain gluten containing food. So I would, I would say that, yeah, there's, I mean, gluten-free foods are not are not recommended. And even for a gluten-free diet, I don't always recommend them. I think they're great Band-Aid foods or transition foods, but they're not like everyday staples. I'm never going to be like, oh yeah, gluten-free crackers, go hog wild on those every single day. I mean, if you enjoy them, cool, but they're not a health food, right? Um, let's see, other questions. Um, with love, Nicole Waller asked, she has an autoimmune struggle. She was gluten-free for eight years and then added it back. So she has autoimmunity, was gluten-free for eight years, added it back because she wanted to heal diet culture. And now she's unsure what to do. Does she restrict or does she choose health? And that's like a really, that's like a big thing to unpack. So I definitely won't do it justice here. Um, this is one thing that Jessica Flanagan specializes in, and she's going to come in, uh, come onto the podcast again. We've already had her here, but we can definitely talk more about this topic. One thing that I have all of my clients do, even after we have the hard data, even after I'm like, yeah, dude, you're gluten sensitive. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. What I encourage folks to do is figure before they make any big decisions and any big changes with their diet. I always want it to come from a place of expansion versus contraction. So pause for a minute and I want you to think about what it feels like in your body when I say the word expansion. So oftentimes we'll feel like an opening across our chest. Maybe our shoulders draw down our back. Maybe we just feel like open and light. Maybe our throat opens up. We just feel like open, right? Expansion. And then I want you to think about what you feel when I say the word 
contraction or constricted. I feel tightness in my belly. I feel just really like my body is closing in on itself, like there's an elephant sitting on my chest, like there's hands around my throat. I feel like everything's tight, tight, tight. We always want to make food decisions from a place of expansion. So if you're not there yet with gluten, if when you say I'm going gluten-free, it feels like contraction, way to beat. That is not a great place to make any food changes, way to beat. And I do this with other foods, by the way, not just gluten, way to beat. Eventually, we want to get to a place of, you know what? Because it is true. It is true. The the gluten autoimmune connection is real. That is practical. That is real, right? We want to get to a place of, you know what? This feels really good. This feels like an empowered decision I am making. I want to support my body the best of my to the best of my ability. And it feels to me like going gluten-free can do this. And I feel... I feel good. I feel ready. I feel excited about this decision. Like I, I, I can do this. It might be challenging, but I'm feeling good. You take control of your decisions, right? Like you, you get to say what you do and what you eat. So come from a place of empowerment. Like I'm doing this because I, this feels like the right choice for me versus I'm doing this because I feel like I have to. And somebody told me it was the right choice. And if I don't, then I could have disease progression. And that feels really scary, right? Ideally, that's it. Obviously, that answer requires, like I said, a lot of um, in-depth conversation and potentially even like some one-on-one dialogue. But that is my initial thought to that. And I plucked that question out because I thought that other people could relate. All right. So I think that's it. I I do have a lot more to say about gluten, of course, but all that other stuff is going to live in my programs for now. So I hope that this helped to clear up the gluten celiac confusion and provided you with some resources. And hey, if you know somebody with celiac disease or gluten sensitivity, or they're unsure about gluten sensitivity, don't hesitate to share this resource if you think it could help somebody else out. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.